taken from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5. So please turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. If you are in need of a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of those Red Sea Bibles in front of you. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased from God, persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousands. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, Father, as we turn now to your word, I pray that you would speak to us through it. Comfort, build us up, call us to praise your name. Be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to prepare me. Amen. So this is about to be an atypical Easter sermon. Um, There is this tension that you feel as a pastor between two realities whenever you get up to preach. On the one hand, um, you know, I am a human being and a sinner and someone who struggles under the weight of life just like any of us do. There are some people and maybe some pastors who like to pretend like pastors exist on some plane above mere mortals, and that just is not the case. 
I have specific gifts and a specific calling in the church, but I am no closer to Jesus than any of you, and I suspect a fair bit farther away from him than some of you. And at the same time, I am a human being who has this specific calling, and that is to proclaim God's word. Preaching is not just me standing up here and sharing some stories about my life and some thoughts on the universe, but um, it is um, me seeking as an imperfect person to proclaim God's perfect word and his truth to us. You don't preach yourself, you preach Jesus. And I feel that tension this morning especially heavily. On the one hand, it is Easter. It's the day that we grin and slap each other on the back and say, Christ is risen! Hallelujah! This is the day of new birth and resurrection. At the same time, uh, I walk into this day, especially as a human being, that is very much in the middle of grief. My uh, wife has recently been uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer, and we have been spending the last two weeks really staring at the darkness right in the face. And that means that I'm not in a place that finds a lot of happiness in lilies and pink bunnies and colored eggs. Um, and so I am seeking to proclaim that truth while also very much feeling the weight of the world. And that is why, as I thought about what in the world to preach this Easter, I decided to preach something from the book of Revelation. People get really weird about the book of Revelation, if you're not aware of that. They read it like it's this cryptogram to the future where you have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, and you like, you like take the first letter in Greek of every paragraph, even though there aren't paragraphs in Greek, and like make it spell out some name of something that connects to some current event in the world, um, or whatever. And that is not what the book of Revelation is. It is called, in the very first verse of it, a revelation. And if you think of that word, that means a making clear, right? A showing forth. The, the Greek word, apocalypse, that that word comes from means an uncovering or clarifying. Children, I suspect, have a far better sense of what this book is than do we adults. If you sat down with my kids and said, here is a book about heavenly battles and dragons and monsters and golden cities and heroes riding on white horses, they would not say, oh, that is a book about oil crises in the Middle East. They would... <laughs> They would say, this is a picture book. This is, in a sense, some kind of fairy story. And in a sense, that is what the book of Revelation is. It is a book that tries to provide us a set of pictures about what is true of the world. A set of pictures using biblical imagery that try to uncover for us the reality of the world that we live in right now. And that's why I find it helpful this Easter. Because the world as I see it right now is not a particularly eastery place. Uh, but this chapter here where John shows us this vision of this heavenly throne room, we are being shown the truth of things. So what I want us to do this morning is just walk through this chapter and see how it speaks to us about hope in this Easter season. And as we are doing that, I am going to be reflecting some on our life the last few weeks because I feel like I can't really help it. But what I want us to be doing is not looking at that, but looking at Jesus Christ and the hope that this chapter proclaims. So let's pray. 
walking through the chapter, we start in the middle of this vision of heaven, the heavenly throne room. In Revelation 4, we have this image of this golden throne where God sits, although you can't really even see him. And around this throne, there are these cherubim and angels and all of these elders. And um, so we're in this throne room. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, which we read, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So there's this scroll, this scroll with seven seals keeping it shut. And that scroll is an Old Testament image from Daniel and Ezekiel um, that is an image of God's plan of justice and salvation. His final decrees that he will redeem his people and bring justice to the world. There's this problem in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. So here's the scroll of ultimate justice and salvation, but nobody is able to open it. All of creation is surveyed. Anything above the earth or on the earth or under the earth, who has the right to bring this justice? Who has the strength to bring this salvation? No human being or angel or power in this world is found. And so then John tells us, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. He starts to weep as this offer to scroll can't be opened. And John isn't weeping out of curiosity, just to be clear. He's weeping because he's longing for what this scroll promises to be fulfilled. Longing to see this plan of salvation be brought to fruition. One of the crazy things about life, if you stop and reflect on it, is how we all long for something different than what this world is. We all have a sense that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. We don't always reflect on that. But have you ever asked, like, where does that idea come from? I mean, we see injustice and sickness and death and people hurting and killing each other, and we say the world shouldn't be that way. But if you look around at the world, right, like, where would you reach that conclusion? Like, this world has always been that way. If we use this world as evidence, we just become cynics. We just say, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Too bad. Tough cookies. But even the hardest cynic, somewhere deep in their heart, longs for something different and more. And the way the Bible views that longing is as our longing for that justice and redemption that is imaged in this scroll in John. We know that people should be treated kindly and fairly. We know that disease and death shouldn't exist, even though, in a sense, nothing in this world draws us to that conclusion. It's out of that longing that John weeps and that we weep. John knows that on the parchment of this scroll is the answer to this longing that his heart feels, and yet no one can open it. Nothing in creation is capable of bringing this plan to completion. I wonder sometimes if all of our sin at root is really just our inability to accept and acknowledge that fact. We trust in, in things in this world, in wealth or in our plans, because we think they can deliver us from the brokenness around us. We look to, to governments or churches or individual freedoms, hoping that they can somehow fix everything that's broken in the world. We think that if we're just strong enough or smart enough or good enough or work hard enough, we will get there, but we're really just chasing this elusive dream of justice and redemption. We are trying to open the scroll, and yet it stays closed. 
So John weeps that the scroll cannot be opened. Then this happens in verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So all of those titles there, those are talking about Jesus, all right? The, the lion of uh, the tribe of Judah, the root of David, those are both Old Testament images of this Messiah, this king in the line of David. Isaiah 11 talks about this king as being like a root coming out of Jesse. So Jesus is this king, it says, this fulfillment of Israel's hope for a king that fights for and defends his people. And this king has triumphed. He's conquered. But how has he conquered? Well, verse 6, And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. So John sees a, a lamb, a sheep. And two things to notice about it. One is that this lamb is standing on the center of the throne. We didn't read Revelation 4, but in Revelation 4, there's all of these heavenly creatures around the throne, but it's God himself who is seated on the throne. So somehow this lamb is God himself, and he's this lion, and he's this king, all caught up together, and the lamb looks as if it has been slain. This is an image of Passover lamb in part. In the Old Testament, there's this celebration Israel would have year after year of God covering their sins, passing over them in their judgment because they would kill this lamb, put its blood on the doorposts. And it's this image of what Jesus came to do as the Messiah from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Again, all of this is about Jesus, right? Those images are applied to what Jesus did in his death. He suffers as the Passover lamb for our sins. He is this lamb led to the slaughter for us. But the point in this image in John 5 is that this lamb is Jesus, and this lamb was slaughtered, and he is alive. He is standing on the throne. That is the triumph of verse 5, the conquest. Jesus has conquered death itself. He's risen from the grave. It's common in Easter sermons to talk about the resurrection for a while as a historical event and focus on giving reasons to show that it really happened. And that is good and true. It did happen in history, and I could make that case for you and tell me I, I'd be happy to sit down with you sometime and discuss that. But I think sometimes in spending all this time making that case, we miss what it actually means. We spend all this time trying to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, and we say, yeah, see, that's, that's an interesting point. It makes it reasonable to believe Christianity. And that's, it is that, yeah, <laughs> but it's so much more. Death in Scripture is pictured as our great enemy. Death not just meaning physical death, although it includes physical death, but also spiritual death, this death in our hearts of despair and discouragement, this death in our world, this brokenness that causes all that is ugly and evil in the world, the final death wrought by our sin and separation from God. All of that together is death pictured as our great enemy. It is Satan's ultimate weapon in Scripture. 
the dragon's sharp teeth in the book of Revelation, the prison where we are all bound, the kingdom where we are all enslaved. And Jesus, in his resurrection, conquered death. Everything in this world which we might hope in, every power and promise, all of the things that were surveyed to see if they could open the scroll are ultimately undone by death. They're swallowed up by it. But Jesus confronts death and is slain, but he is not undone. Instead, it is death that is undone. Jesus battles the dragon and it swallows him whole and he tears his way out from its throat to emerge victorious. He is cast into that dark prison and he bursts the chains and shines light to the prisoners bound there. He goes into the kingdom of death and proclaims freedom to the captives and shatters its gates and walks out the other side. The lamb has conquered. And that is part of what we proclaim at Easter, that death is a defeated enemy. Death is a defeated enemy. Again, the reason we need revelation is because we need to have the curtain pulled away. We need to be shown what is really real. And this is a great example of that. Because death in our world feels so big. Physical death and spiritual death even more. We confront it and we feel like there is no hope for victory. Left to ourselves, there isn't. But that isn't the truth of things. This is what we are called by this passage to see and believe, that death has power and it is still our enemy, but it is an enemy that has been beaten. That it, it wounds us, but ultimately it is what will die. That doesn't take the pain away of our current anguish. It still hurts. We have been looking that reality square in the face these last few weeks. I know for Elizabeth... There is much that is hard and scary in what she's having to think about. And over the coming months and hopefully years, that will increase. And for me and our family, there is the reality of a lot of pain and loneliness and struggle ahead. Um, I have been very much feeling the weight of that. But while there is still darkness and pain, those things do not get the last word. What we are feeling is not the triumph of the grave, because of Jesus' resurrection, life wins. Our pain is the death throes of death. The lamb has conquered. That is what is truly true. So death has been defeated. Jesus has triumphed in his resurrection. But there's more to say, too. We keep reading in our passage. The next few verses are these symbolic ways that show the lamb's perfection. And then if you skip down to verse 9, he takes the scroll, um, and then everyone bursts into song. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. So the lamb triumphs, but it's not just that he's beaten death, it's also that he somehow purchased us for God. Again, here's the image. We are slaves to our sin. We live in it, and we serve it, and we let it own us. More than that, we owe something to justice because of our sin. Death is our condition, 
And death is also something that we spread. Every cruel word we say that kills someone a little bit inside, every way that we've lived in the world that breaks it and hurts it, every rebellion against God, that is a result of our spiritual death. But that also, in a sense, demands spiritual death. But Jesus doesn't come asking us to pay that price. Instead, he pays that price for us. In his death, he purchases us from our slavery to sin. In his death, he pays that demand for spiritual death that we are owed. And Jesus pays it for people from every tribe and language and people and nation. One of the results of spiritual death in Scripture is that humanity is divided. We turn against each other. But Jesus purchases people from every tribe and language and nation. He's making a new people, a people healed and brought together again. And he purchases those people for a new purpose. They are a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on earth. Those images are how the world is meant to work. God puts us on the world as his servants and his rulers. We're meant to serve God by tending and caring for the world. We're, in a sense, meant to be the priests for creation, showing forth God to this world that he made. And Jesus is purchasing these people to create once more a people with this original purpose. All of which means that because of the Lamb, because of Easter, death also doesn't define our identity. Death no longer defines identity. Our temptation as Christians is to let the death of this age dictate how we live in it. We feel the death and the brokenness of the world, and so we feel like in this age, death is all that defines us. And we get this mentality where we just try to hunker down and kind of hold on until, you know, just try to survive. But that's not the life that scripture calls us to. Instead, this is how the Bible views it. Jesus has been raised And even though this world is groaning under sin, we are called to live out Jesus' resurrection in our lives. This is how Scripture puts it in Paul's letter to the Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is something that Elizabeth and I have been talking about a lot really these last two years since her initial diagnosis. But this world is full of struggle and pain, but our temptation is then to let that struggle and pain be the thing that defines our lives. To view cancer, to view our other struggles as the things that tell us who we are. But our mission is not to live in death, but to live out life in the midst of death. To work in our suffering, just as in everything else, to serve God and show forth his glory. Here's the thing. I say that, and I almost cringe when I say that, because people hear that and are like, oh, that's so, like, noble or profound or something. No, in the first place, I'm not saying that we do that perfectly, right? I mean, there's still the struggle and the tension and the days when you're just bitter and frustrated. But more than that, that's not some noble thing. That is what Christianity is. Paul summarized the Christian's calling in the book of Romans like this. He says, For none of us lives for ourself alone, and none of us dies for ourself alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life. 
so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. In our living and in our dying, we are called to show forth the life of Christ, to be a kingdom of priests and witnesses to his resurrection. We are to do that even though in this age we are surrounded by death. We're to shine with light even though this world is dark. We are to live in resurrection even though our bodies are wasting away. That is what Jesus bought us. So death no longer defines our identity. But even that isn't the end of the story. It isn't just that Jesus defeated death in his resurrection. It isn't just that he calls us to show forth new life right now. Our ultimate hope is that death itself will be destroyed. Death itself will be destroyed. If you look back at our reading from Revelation, after the song of the Lamb's sacrifice, then this army of millions of angels gather and they sing. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So now it isn't just the Lamb's salvation that they're singing about, but the Lamb's reign, his rule. Jesus is worthy of those things. He's worthy of them right now in this scene in heaven. And there's a real sense in heaven where Jesus is reigning right now. But the proclamation of the Lamb's reign is also something that calls us to look ahead to what is still to come. In verse 13, there's one final song. But now it isn't just the angels and saints. It is all of creation singing to the Lamb. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. All of creation is bowing down and recognizing the Lamb as King, which is something that hasn't happened yet, but which draws us from thinking just about Jesus' death and resurrection to Jesus' return and triumph that is still to come. We pray every Sunday, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the moment when that becomes real, when his kingdom comes to earth. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. And that day is not here yet. But because of the triumph of the Lamb, that day is coming. Jesus' resurrection is something that happened in the past and that affects us in the present, but ultimately it calls us to look to the future. In 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is pictured as the first fruits of resurrection. The first fruits, which is if you're a farmer, right? It's the, that first little ear of corn you see appearing on the stalk. Or for all of us here in springtime, it's those first green shoots that we see beginning to thrust up from the ground. There's a joy that we feel in, when we see that. But the joy isn't just in that thing, right? It's the joy in recognizing that that thing holds a promise. That spring is coming, that the harvest is coming, that it will be joined by more fruit. And that is what Jesus' resurrection speaks to us. We see his resurrection, and we know that creation's resurrection and our resurrection is coming. We've had a lot of conversations and prayers with people um, about God's power to supernaturally heal my wife in the last few weeks. 
God has that power, and absolutely we are praying that he would do that. There are a lot of reasons that I would love for that to happen. For the sake of our family and me and the sake of her. But in those prayers, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable. And it's because I feel like often that is what people are putting their hope in. Here's the thing. Healing would be great, but that is a terrible place to put your hope. Even if God intervened right now and took away her cancer, it would only be delaying the inevitable. This world would still be full of suffering. We would still ultimately be parted. We would still have to bear the burden of this broken existence. Our true hope is not some temporary healing. Our true hope is the resurrection of the dead. Here is what will happen on that day when Jesus Christ returns and creation finally dies. The earth will be made new. It will still, yes, be this planet and this universe, but remade. Every effect of sin will be washed away. There will be no more sadness and no more pain, no more cruelty, no more temptation, no more injustice or anxiety. Everything good and beautiful in our world will be made fuller and everything broken and dark will be gone. And we will be made new, given new bodies. We will be raised from the dead, but our bodies that are now groaning under physical and spiritual death will instead be overflowing with life. And we will live in our new bodies on that new earth, the lives that we have always been meant to live. We will work and play and laugh and talk and eat and drink and sing and read and learn and do all of these things without any of the frustrations of this age. We will do that forever. Right? I mean, just imagine what that means, right? That, that, that first million years when you check off everything on, the, on that list of your dreams here in this life that you've had and eternity has barely started. We will do all of that. And we will do it with God. He will be there with us. Our light and our comfort and our father and our friend. We will serve him there. And he will teach us. And he will dry the tears that we may still cry in that first million years before this life disappears into memory. That is our hope. Last week, after we shared the diagnosis here at church, we had lots of conversations with all of you, and we appreciated them so much. Everyone was so encouraging and so kind. But one of them stood out in particular to both of us. One precious old saint, who I will keep anonymous because I know that they would like it that way, but one um, of our oldest members looked up to Elizabeth and just hugged her and said, I am really looking forward to seeing Jesus, and I know that you are too. And for my wife and for me as she told me about it, I mean, that is it. That is what our hope is. Easter is not a celebration that we will not suffer in this life. We will. God supports us and cares for us in our suffering, but none of us avoids it. Nobody gets out of this life alive. Our oldest brothers and sisters, I suspect, can teach us a lot about that. But even if you postpone it for decades, eventually that darkness is going to descend. Nor is Easter a celebration that God will always change our circumstances. He can. And again, it is right for us to ask him to. We shouldn't pretend like we don't care about the pain and suffering in this life. But what Easter celebrates is that the deliverance we long for is coming. 
that we will get to see Jesus, that he will restore us, and that we will be brought forth into something far greater and far more than anything we could imagine in this life. And that is what we are called to hope in. So that's the picture. That's where I am finding hope in the middle of our struggle and where we are all called to find hope, wherever you are this Easter. But as we close, I just want to leave you with one question in light of that, and that is simply, is that the hope that you are living for? Is that the hope that you are living for? God offers us this hope in Jesus Christ, this lamb who died for our sins, this lamb who defeated death in his resurrection, who is reigning and will return. He's done that, but that is not just a fact you pull out at funerals, right? (laughs) Not just the thing that you use every once in a while to comfort yourself. That is meant to fundamentally change how you live. You can frame it simply by asking the question that's really repeated throughout this chapter of Revelation, is he worthy? Is he then worthy? None of us are worthy to open the scroll, John tells us. Nothing in this world can bring salvation. Only Jesus is worthy. But if that is true, why do we invest so much of our hope and life in this world in things that aren't that? Why are we living for all of these these stupid dying things rather than living for him? And more than that, none of us is worthy to receive the honor and glory and praise. Our lives aren't meant to be lived for us. They are meant to be lived for this Lamb. We are called to honor Him as our King and live for Him and offer our lives to Him. Because here's the thing. In our world, we all want to believe the stuff that I just said about what Jesus has done. We all want to believe that death is conquered and we will have eternal life. But you cannot believe that Jesus has done that without also believing that he is worthy of everything you have. You can't have it both ways, right? Either his salvation demands our lives and our love, or it's not true to begin with. But the good news is that as we offer him our lives, we discover just how worthy he really is to live for that hope. To suffer and die living in that hope. That is the most worthwhile kind of life you can imagine. Creation is at its most beautiful when we join with that song in this chapter. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. O God and Father, Thank you for this hope you offer us in Jesus Christ. Pray that we might cling to it and live lives, giving him the praise that his sacrifice demands. Pray these things in his name. Amen.